Please do pray for Keystone College. I really can't boast enough in that ministry, and, and, and it's all to God's glory. But there's some really amazing things happening at that campus right now, and God is blessing it. Last night, in fact, a young man from Keystone got baptized. And uh, so pray for that ministry. God's doing great things. People are hearing the gospel. And guys, we're doing the exact study we're doing at our church family time up at Keystone. We're doing the attributes of God. And I just thought, I'm not sure any of these students know these things. And it's reinforced by every week I go, these students who don't have to come to this, they don't get any credit or anything for this, but we're getting a full two or three tables full of students and they've never heard this stuff before and they're sitting on the edge of their seats and they're asking questions. And So just pray that God would really just bless this, continue to bless this ministry and that something great would happen, more people would come to Christ, things like that. So today, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 2. If you remember, we took a week off last week to sort of have a communion-based message. And today we're going to get back into James as we look at one of the most famous passages in all of James and all of the Bible, probably. James 2, 14 to 26. If you remember the theme of our study through the book of James, it's growing up for God or growing up in God. We've kind of used both. But we want to become mature. That's the point of James. We want to become greater disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. And that's the point of today, is to look at what we're going to call tangible faith, tangible faith from James 2, 14 to 26. But did you ever have something that didn't work the way it was supposed to work? Maybe right now you have something like that. A little, a couple weeks ago we had a garage sale, right? That's kind of the time where you have things in your house that you don't want and maybe don't work. And then you try to sell them to other people. Um, when something doesn't work, I don't know if, what, if you're like that person who likes to fix things and tinker with it until you can improve it. But we live in a disposable society. We kind of throw things away if they don't work. But one of the best, most modern pieces of technology, and I guess you can't really even call it modern because it's been around a hundred some years, but one of the best inventions that's ever been made has been the automobile, correct? I mean, in the last hundred or so years, the automobile has changed our world. And it's been one of the best inventions that's ever been because it impacts basically every single day of our lives. Think about it. Think how many places you go that if you didn't have an automobile, how much harder would that be? As most of you know, I live in Clark Summit and I work up here and that's a 25-minute drive. If I didn't have a car, if I didn't have an automobile, that would take several hours to most of the day to either run or walk or take my bike to go back and forth. But because I have an automobile, I can make the journey in 25 minutes and I can zip around town and visit places and things like that and it's all thanks to the car, right? Um, so we're thankful for cars, but what's interesting even about the car is that if it doesn't work properly... It's pointless, and that's kind of where we're headed today. Is my parents, when we were growing up, uh, when we became licensed drivers, they decided to have a strategy for uh, getting us to drive, get us the cheapest possible cars they could find, and give them to us. And so uh, you should have seen these things. Uh, technically, they moved, but uh, I wasn't proud to drive that to Abington Heights um, for a lot of different reasons. Is the internet going down? Okay, you may have to refresh the online there when it comes back up, but I'll continue my story. So, so I had these cars. We had these cars. My parents got us cars, but these cars were cheap. I mean, you, you admit that, right? You admit they were cheap cars. They, they ran. They didn't look pretty, <laughs> but uh, would move. They didn't look pretty. That's right. And so these cars, they did, generally speaking, get us from point A to point B, and that's the point of a car, right? They didn't look great. I wasn't getting a lot of dates. No, 
because of these cars. In fact, I might have been turning dates away with these cars, but uh, some of these cars uh, made noises, strange, strange noises. Some were loud roars, some were squeaks, and we never really knew what they were. Uh, some of them had smells, really strange smells. Like sometimes you, it smelled something car-like that something was wrong, but also it smelled like chicken sometimes. I don't really know why. <laughs> Actually, we did find the culprit in the one vehicle. There was a bag of chicken from some yesteryear. Um, but they would be leaking sometimes. They'd be leaking outside the car. They'd be leaking inside the car. And so inevitably what ha would happen with these cars is one, of the, one or two of them would break down. I remember a trip we took to Penn State University. We were going to get a, see a football game. And we got an hour or so into rural Pennsylvania going down to Penn State. And the thing just started to smoke. Smoke started to come out of the engine, and we pulled over at some truck stop. And some nice truckers came over and said, hey, what's the problem? Pop the hood. Let's take a look at it. And as soon as the one guy did, something green exploded all over this guy. And uh, I don't know much about cars. I admit that. But if something hot and green explodes out of your engine, it's probably not a good thing. And so that car did not make it to Penn State University. We didn't ever make it to the football game. We had to we had to call for help. We had to get a ride. They had to come get us. I had to have the car towed. I don't even remember what happened to that car, but uh, that, didn't, that didn't go well. Another time we were trying to go out to Chicago with a different car, if you remember that, and we got, I don't know, five or eight hours into the journey, and we're on the highway, and all of a sudden the car starts shaking violently. And I'm like, well, that can't be good. So we pulled over, and uh, we ended up taking it to some mechanic in Sticksville, Ohio, and so instead of Chicago, we ended up in some random town in Ohio for the rest of the day while they tried to work on the car and get it fixed. My point is this. The car is a fantastic invention, is it not? You guys are blessed by your car. In fact, the Walkers have two cars. Anyone have two cars? A two-car family out there? We are a two-car family. You guys have seen our Honda come up and, and go back. But um, we have another car. It's a 2008 Town & Country and we've had it since the twins were born. And unfortunately, right now, it is sitting in our driveway, not working, because uh, we have a couple problems with it. The rotors are broken, the radiator is broken, a couple other problems are broken. And so we have this car that's sitting in our driveway, not working. Now, the car is a great invention, but if it doesn't work, what use is it? What point is it? It's a useless hunk of metal. In fact, now I'm trying to think, what should we do with this car? Because we don't really want to put a lot of money into this car. It's going to take a lot of things to fix it. And it's old. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe we should do like the garage. We should sell it to somebody. <laughs> we'll be honest about it. But I'm trying to think going, man, is this actually going to work? Are we going to be able to sell a car that has this many problems? It's that old. And the point about this story is that it's when something that is good doesn't work properly, it's not good at all. Tangible faith is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at something today that when it works, it is amazing. It blesses the entire world. It makes a difference for the rest of eternity when it works. And when it doesn't, James is going to tell us it's useless. It's pointless. Join me in James 2, 14 to 26. And listen to the classic passage, the famous passage. Starting in verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Tangible faith is the title of the lesson today. Tangible faith. Today we study one of the most famous passages and maybe one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture, especially for Protestants. If you know, there are two primary denominations of Christianity. We have Roman Catholicism, and we have Protestants, who would basically be non-Roman Catholics. Well, we want to handle this passage today in two different ways. Today we're going to look at the doctrine of this passage, okay? And I believe this passage is important enough to do it in two different lessons. So Pastor Mel is going to come to us next week. We were, we were flirting with putting them both into one, and then we realized that probably was going to be too long. And so Pastor Mel is going to come to us next week and speak to us about the practicality of this text. So we're going to look at the doctrine of it today and the practicality of this text. But this passage today is challenging. It's big. It's, it's difficult to know what he means. And so we're going to do our best to explain this today. And so we're going to look at the doctrine here first. We're going to go into the classroom today, okay? We encourage you to take notes, take lots of notes, maybe even ask questions, maybe even, you know, write yourself a note and say, I need to look at this again tonight or tomorrow because this is a really important lesson. But today it's going to feel more like a classroom and less like a sermon, and I think that's kind of okay. That's a good thing. But we're going to do our best to figure this out today, what it means that faith without works is dead. But I told you, this is a tricky passage for Protestants. If you remember, when the Protestant Reformation took place, I think it was uh, 1517, 1518, something like that, we just crossed the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. If you remember that, a, a man, a priest, a Roman Catholic priest named Martin Luther, started exploring the scriptures. And the more he explored the scriptures, the more he realized that the Roman Catholic faith didn't line up with what his Bible said, especially in one significant area. And that primary area that Martin Luther had a problem with, according to the Bible and the Roman Catholic Church not lining up, was that salvation couldn't be attained by faith alone. Because the Roman Catholics, at least during the day, were saying you had to add a lot of different things onto that. You couldn't be saved simply by faith. You had to do a bunch of these different things as well, to find salvation and justification. And Martin Luther had a problem with that. And so he stood against this perversion of the church. And, and now we fast forward 500 years, we have a denomination called Protestant Christianity, and it actually comes from the word protest. Because he protested the perverted doctrine that salvation wasn't by faith alone. And so he came up with this term called solified solified, which literally translates into salvation by faith alone, solified. And this school of thought states that a person finds salvation and justification by God 
purely by faith alone in Jesus alone. And it's right. It's right. Passages like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, if you have your Bibles, jump over there. I'm not going to read the entire passage. I'm going to read the most famous part of it. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. Paul writing, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Listen to this. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith alone, no works, so that no one may boast. Romans 3, let's jump over there quickly. Romans 3, starting in verse 21. Romans 3, starting in verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who will believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And listen to this, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and on and to speak about the same things. But there you can tell, and even Titus 3, 4-7, to and even the most famous passage in all of Scripture, John three sixteen, seems to state clearly that salvation is a gift of God. It's not something that's earned. And those are, that's a distinction, right? If, if it's something that you earn, it's kind of like a paycheck. You work for it, and then you go to your boss, and he hands you a paycheck because you earned the money. But if it's a gift, then we didn't earn it, and we were given to it by God free of charge. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what Martin Luther was standing for and others during the time of the Protestant Reformation. That we are saved apart from works by Christ alone, and the only thing we need to do is place our faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And I think we all get that. We all understand that. We all agree to that. But now we come to James. And now James is going to say something, something to us that sounds a little confusing. It sounds like it might be contradicting the rest of Scripture. Is faith not enough to save us? James says faith without works is dead. Or he says in 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so many people, many scholars, many pastors have wrestled with this for the last 500 years, trying to figure out the relationship between faith and works. And we're going to do our best today. And this is something I've thought a lot about, okay? Something I've really wrestled with. And guys, I need to say this clearly today. It's a matter of eternal life and death. If we don't understand this passage, if we don't understand what real faith is, then we're flirting with damnation. We're flirting with not being justified in God's eyes. And we can't afford to be wrong about this. Okay? I want us to know and believe all of the Bible. All of the Bible. I don't want us to accept one passage and to throw another passage away. I want us to accept the entire word of God or the whole counsel of God. Or as my dad, Pastor Mel, so eloquently said one time, he said, the Bible does not disagree with itself. It is one message all the way through. And I think he's right. I believe the Bible has one primary message. And both Paul and James support that one message. And that's our goal today, is to see how they don't contradict, but how they support one another. And James does. It supports what Paul said, if we understand it properly. But I told you, this has been a difficult text for the last 500 years for Protestant Christians who say it's faith alone without works. And today I want to sort of help us restore our view of works. Because we've, works has been one of those icky four-letter words in Christianity. We don't like works because we feel like it's perverting the gospel. 
But if we understand it right, it's not only not perverting the gospel, it's, helps, it's helping to support the gospel. But we need to start with this today. What is faith? What is faith? If I asked you that question, I wonder what your definition for faith would be. And I could have looked it up in the dictionary. Faith is pretty important for us to understand, is it not? If it's the foundation for our salvation and eternal life, isn't that a word we need to understand very, very clearly and properly? I could have looked it up in Google. I could have looked it up in the Webster Dictionary, but I didn't have to because Scripture gives us a definition of faith that is flawless. And it's found in Hebrews 11, verse 1. This is the way the writer of Hebrews defines the word faith. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing something promised with an assurance that it's going to happen, a hope that it will happen, a certainty that it will take place, even though we've never seen the fulfillment of that promise yet. It will transpire, it will take place, but I haven't yet seen it. That's what faith is. Or as we're going to look at today, tangible faith is faith with evidence that God is real. Faith with evidence that God loves us. Faith with evidence that God will never, ever break his promises. Faith will bring evidence. The simplest and most purest way to understand this text from James 2 is to take this definition that we just learned about faith and apply it to what James is saying. Okay, we need this definition to apply to what James is saying here, and we will help ourselves a lot with what James is saying. He says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And listen to what he says after that. Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? We are talking today about the salvation of our souls. We need to pay attention, okay? It's going to feel a little long. It's going to feel a little detailed, but it's very important, okay? I want us to all to listen, to pay attention, to take notes, because this is crucial. And all of the passages are crucial. All the sermons we preach are crucial. But this one is the foundation for our salvation. And we need to really pay attention to what he says today. But notice what James is doing. He's not undoing justification or salvation by faith alone. He's not. He's undoing justification and salvation by a false faith. That's a very big distinction. If we understand that, we're going to help ourselves for the rest of this sermon. He's not undoing salvation by faith alone. He's undoing salvation by a false faith. Because remember what the definition of faith is. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. James is saying to us today that if our faith does not produce evidence, or is it tangible, it's not seen, it's not validated, he's going to say to us today that we don't have faith. We don't have faith at all because we obviously don't believe what the Lord has taught us if there's no evidence. If we did believe, if we did have faith, then we would be striving to obey his every word. Belief always evidences itself with action. It has to. If there is no action, if there is no evidence, it could be stated that we don't really believe it. And that's what James is saying to today. If we don't have faith through the validation by obedience, then we can't have any confidence of our salvation either. 
And if we're not confident about our salvation, we are not ready to stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. If today was the day that Jesus came back and we are not confident of our salvation, that would be really bad. So this text today is of utmost importance that we find out that we have the proper faith in Jesus and not the forgery. So we should all test our faith today, myself included. We should test the faith that we say we have in Jesus and see, is it real faith? Is it proper faith? Is it saving faith? Because it's too late to ask that on Judgment Day. We need to ask that today. But we're learning something profound here and important today, that there exists a faith that isn't faith at all. There exists a faith that isn't faith at all. When I went to New York City, I told you I, I got duped by one of those guys who were selling things out of a briefcase, and I bought a Rolex watch for 15 bucks. And I was happy for five or six minutes until my parents dashed my dreams and said, Todd, we don't think that's a Rolex. It's not even spelled right. It's making your wrist green. Um, it might be plastic. Um, I think something's smoking. Todd, it's not a Rolex. It's not performing like a Rolex. It doesn't look like a Rolex. It says Rolex on it, but I don't think it's a Rolex watch that you bought for $15. It was a forgery, and I was too young to know that there were such things. I thought that every guy with a briefcase was selling something authentic. Probably not. Um, but I found out that day that there are forgeries for things, although they say something of something of value, they aren't of anything of value. And that's what James is saying to us today, that there exists something that's called faith that is not faith. And you could tell that if we have a, a devil, an evil opponent who's smart, that looks real but is fake and will profit us nothing. But I want you to listen to what James says regarding this false faith in one passage. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Can that faith save him? And it's a rhetorical question, but the answer is no. Can that faith save him? Verse 14. Verse 16, he says, what good is that faith? It's no good. In verse 17, he says, that faith is dead. In verse 19, he says, that faith is demon-like. Wow. In verse 20, he says, that faith is useless. And in verse 26, he reiterates and says, that faith is dead. Listen to those. Look at those. That faith, that faith that isn't real is dead, demon-like, and useless and will profit you nothing. There is a false faith out there that cannot save us. Are we surprised by that? Are we surprised that there are fake Christians? Are we surprised that there's a fake gospel out there? Is that the first time you're hearing this today? Probably not. In fact, guys, I used to be one. I used to be a fake Christian. I used to be a person who was carrying the label of Christianity upon my life, but was not a Christian in my actions. So I know what James is speaking about today is real. It happens. And what James is warning us of today, becoming fake and false Christians, is very, very serious. And it's sadly all around us. And the devil knows, he knows, that a false faith will profit us nothing. It will damn us forever. If we get the false one and we don't get the real one, we're in big, deep trouble. But let's make it clear what he's talking about today. When James says the word works, we need to define that word as well. Because that word, can, that word can be tricky. Because in the Protestant Reformation, there were a bunch of religious duties that you had to do 
in order to be saved. You had to have faith in Jesus was important, but you also had to do these things that the church said you had to do. So when we hear works now, we sort of jump to that conclusion and go, oh man, I, works are bad. We don't need to do works. But James is talking about something different than that. And I, I think the best and cleanest way to understand what he's talking about today is simply define the word works by obedience to Jesus. Obedience to Jesus is the tangible proof of faith because it proves and validates that we believe and are assured that Jesus actually is our Lord and Savior. Without obedience to Jesus, we don't believe. And with obedience, we absolutely believe. So let's look at a couple important details, okay? James is not saying this. He's not saying that works save us. After wrestling with this for many times, many hours, James is not saying that works save or justify us. That's not what James is saying. Jesus alone is our Savior. Jesus alone is our Savior. He entirely by himself reconciles us to God. If you know John 14, 6, one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I am. Alone, 100%, Jesus is the Savior. That means Jesus gets 100% of the glory for our forgiveness. 100% of the glory for our new life. Because we were dead. We were dead in our sins, and a dead person can't help themselves. Right? No dead person has ever helped themselves do anything. And Jesus says clearly in the scriptures, we were dead. Or you remember the passage from last week? We looked at the Valley of Dry Bones. In Ezekiel 37, and he asks the prophet Ezekiel, can these bones live? That's a very strange question. What? It's a valley of bones. And he says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Jesus, only you know. And in that passage, he raises the bones back to new life. And that's a parallel for the gospel. Jesus alone saves us by breathing new life into us. Through his power, through his love, through his blood. But once we are alive spiritually, once we are alive and have new life in us, it is also true that we must say yes to the covenant relationship that we can have with God through Jesus. Because God is not going to force anybody into loving him for the rest of eternity. And we know that because in passages like Lazarus, excuse me, John chapter 11, we meet a guy named Lazarus and I'm going to recap this story very quickly for us. In John 11, Lazarus is a friend of Jesus, and he dies. He dies. And by the time Jesus gets to his friend Lazarus, he has been dead for four days. Okay? Hope is gone at this point. Lazarus is dead. It's time for the funeral and the memorial service. It's time to, they've already buried him. It's time to forget about Lazarus and just remember the good things about Lazarus. But when Jesus comes to Lazarus, he asks to go to the tomb where Lazarus is buried. And so they bring him to the tomb And Jesus says something a little weird. He says, take the stone away from the tomb. And the sisters of Lazarus are like, oh, Jesus, that's not a good idea. He's been dead for four days. There's going to be an odor. He's going to stink. I mean, he's dead. You know, if you could have come a little while ago, we would have done anything we could have. But, But now he's dead. There's no need to roll the stone away. And Jesus says again, please roll the stone away. So they do. They roll the stone away, and Jesus yells into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And you remember the story. What happens? The man walks out of the tomb, and he's kind of dressed like a mummy. He's wrapped in all these burial clothes. 
And Jesus goes, take, the, take those clothes off him. He's not dead anymore. Lazarus stumbles out of the tomb, walks out of the tomb, and it's like, wow, there he is. Lazarus is alive again. But what happens in this passage is Jesus raises Lazarus purely by himself. Lazarus didn't squeeze his hand. He didn't raise his hand. He did nod or wink to Jesus and say, yes, I'm ready for a new life. He was dead. So Jesus raised Lazarus by his own will, by his own glory, by his own power. Lazarus didn't even say yes to that. But then Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And Lazarus has a choice, doesn't he? At that moment, for the first time in four days, Lazarus has a choice. He can either stay where he is, which would be silly, stay in the tomb, stay wrapped up, lay down and act like a dead person, or he can come out. And what seemed quite obvious to Lazarus at that moment was to come out of the tomb. And so he said yes. And he walked out of the tomb. And guys, I think that is a phenomenal parallel for the gospel. Jesus raises us to new life by himself. He alone is the Savior. Lazarus doesn't get any glory at all for his new life. And neither do we. But as soon as Lazarus is made alive, he has a choice. To come out of the tomb and start following Jesus or to stay acting like a dead person. And that's when Lazarus says, yes, yes, I will come out. Yes, I will live a new life. I will live this newfound life that you've given me, Jesus. And so he comes out of the tomb and he says, yes. And that's a parallel to us saying yes to following Jesus. Does that mean we're saving ourselves? No. Does that mean we've made ourselves alive? Absolutely not. We're doing what's obvious. Saying yes to new eternal life with our Lord and Savior. And the way that you know that we believe is by all our choices that follow that experience. If we act like we're alive, the conclusion is we're alive. If Lazarus had stayed in the tomb, he never came out, he never made any movements, never made any noises, he stayed exactly as he was, does anyone believe Lazarus has risen from the dead? No, of course not. That's silly. What if Jesus just said, take my word for it. I know nothing happened, but he's alive. Just enjoy his new new life. But he didn't move. He didn't come out. No one would have believed it. But Lazarus walked out. And and as soon as he walked out, I mean, I can only imagine the jaws hanging open going, a dead man cannot do that. He just walked out of the tomb. One conclusion is made at that moment. Lazarus is alive again. So, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, it is proof. It's not the moment of our life. It's not the moment of our new life. It is proof that we're alive. Because dead people can't do that. There are no spiritual zombies, okay? You're either dead or you're alive. When Jesus breathes new life into us, we don't do anything to receive that life. But as soon as he breathes life into us, he says, follow me. And then we have a choice to make, don't we? So James is not saying that works save us. Jesus alone saves us. But James is saying that works or obedience to Jesus, as we're going to call it, is so closely related to faith that they're one and the same. As we'll learn, obedience to Jesus is faith because it's tangible faith. Faith that can be seen, faith that can be validated, Obedience to Jesus is a clear and obvious sign that we believe in him. And without it, we can't be sure if we have faith at all. 
If Lazarus was risen from the dead, but he never came out of the tomb, does it matter if he's still in the tomb acting like a dead person? No, it doesn't matter. It only matters as if he comes out and starts living his new life. And I'm going to say it this way, okay? Faith and works, we've kind of put them on different teams. Pick a side. And so for the last 500 years, we've picked a side. And the Roman Catholics, we believe, I don't even know, I've never experienced that faith. But the Roman Catholics say, we believe in works. And we say over here in Protestant Christianity, well, we believe in faith. And now we're opposed. Now we're done different teams. But the Bible seems to say that they're two sides of the same coin. Faith and works are two sides of the same coin. You don't have to pick one. In fact, you can't pick one. When you pick one, you pick them both. When you pick belief, you also pick obedience to Jesus. Now, I gave you an illustration from the Bible. I'm going to give you an illustration that I made up, okay? And I hope it works because it works in my mind. Let's say faith is a car. Let's say faith is a car. Okay, we just talked about automobiles. This will make sense. Now, this car is given to us by God, and it's entirely free of charge. Okay, this car, this faith, is given to us by God free of charge. And we're also given endless gasoline for the car given to us by God. The gas will never run out. You have as much as you need free of charge. The directions to get us to heaven are also given to us by God. And the car has been guaranteed, unlike the cars I had when I was 16, the car has been guaranteed to never break down. And it's guaranteed it'll get us to heaven. It's free of charge. The gas is free of charge. The directions are given to us by God, and it's promised to never break down, and it will get us to heaven. Meaning God gets all the glory for our chance to get to heaven, does he not? The car is from him, the gas is from him, the directions are from him, and the guarantee that it'll never break down is from God. Without his grace, we don't have a chance to get to heaven. Just like I told you, without an automobile, it's very hard to get places that are far away, aren't they? All you and I need to do in this illustration is drive the car according to the rules of the road. And we are guaranteed to get to heaven. That's all we have to do. Drive the car. Drive the car according to the laws Christ has given us, and we are guaranteed to get to heaven. Now, in this illustration, faith is a car. And it's a beautiful car, unlike some of the ones my parents got us. Coopties, grocery getters. Okay, this faith, this car illustration is a beautiful car, but looking beautiful is not the point of this car. Okay? The point of this car is for getting you and I to heaven. That's the point. Now, if this car remained in our garage and we never drove it, and no one ever saw it, the question could be asked, do we actually have the car? If we never drove it and no one ever saw it, couldn't someone ask us that? Do you actually have the car? Or it could also be asked, what good is the car if we never use it to get to heaven? So you have a car that can get you to heaven, but what good is it is if you never drive the car? The car, after all, wasn't given to us to look beautiful or to store away in our garage. The car was given to us for one primary purpose, to get us to the kingdom of heaven. If we claim we have the car, but no one ever sees us drive it, and we don't use it to drive to heaven, the car isn't profiting us anything. And regardless of our claim to own the car, we won't get to heaven. Meaning whether we believe we have the car or not, it does not matter because we aren't getting to heaven unless we drive the car. And therefore, someone would say to us, the car to you is useless. 
you have it, apparently. Apparently you say you have it, but I never see it, and you're not driving it to get to heaven. What is the point? Now, all illustrations are going to fail at some point. That is not a perfect illustration, okay? But at least you can see the logic of where James is going when he says, faith without works is useless. It's dead. James says to us, he says to us, excuse me, in verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Or using our illustration about the car, don't just say you have a car given to you by God. Show us the car by pulling it out of your garage and driving it to heaven. Unless your faith can be seen by God, can be seen by others, and even ourselves, we can't know that we have it. And if we don't have faith in Jesus, guys, we are the same as the unbelievers. And we're still in our sins, and we're still awaiting eternal condemnation. If we don't have faith in Jesus... That's why this is so serious. We cannot afford to be wrong about this and have either no faith or have the false faith. Without true faith in Jesus, we're doomed. We're doomed. We cannot afford to have a forgery faith when it matters the most at Judgment Day. Let's handle the two hardest parts of the text, okay, before we close today. Number one, James says this in verse 19, You believe God is one you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, or the word tremble can be used. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. James is saying to us quite simply that belief in God alone is not faith. Belief in God alone is not faith. It can't be, because the demons believe. The demons believe in God so much so, they are terrified of him. They're terrified of his very name, of his very presence. Maybe you remember that passage in scripture where the guy is indwelt by 2,000 demons and he's terrorizing the entire region. And then Jesus comes ashore in a boat and the demon runs to Jesus, falls on his face and begs for mercy. Man, it's an awesome passage. But you can tell, even the demons believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in the Son of God. They believe in the one almighty God. Are they saved? Absolutely not. Because we find this in Scripture, that belief starts faith. Okay? In Romans 10, 9 to 10, if you have your Bibles, go back there. Romans 10, 9 and 10. This should probably be underlined in your Bible if it's not yet. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, Paul writing, He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Belief starts faith, okay? That's how faith begins. It begins with belief that God is real, that belief that Jesus is the Son of God. It begins there. But according to James and other parts of Scripture, obedience to Jesus completes your faith. In other words, you can't have the beginning and not the end. Faith doesn't take place until you have them both. Go back to our main passage in James 2, 22, and listen to what James says. Speaking about Abraham, he says, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. 
Faith does not mean we're saving ourselves or raising ourselves from the dead. I told you, faith doesn't happen until we're alive. Faith can't happen until we're already alive. Faith is you and I coming out of the tomb and living our new lives. Faith validates that new life has been given to us. When we say yes to Jesus and we begin obeying Jesus, then and only then do we know we have real faith. And I was confused about that growing up. I used to think that saying a prayer, saying I believe in you, God, I believe you're real, and I believe Jesus is real, was my faith. And so I stored it away on a shelf. It kept getting dusty. I was never using it. It was like the car that never came out of the garage. And, and if someone said, are you a Christian? I'd say, yeah, 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 I did that. I did that when I was five. I, you know, I got the trophy. It's there on my shelf. So I'll, I'll pull it out on Judgment Day, and I'll use it then. But right now, I don't need it. I'm just living my life. And James is going, man, that is not how faith works at all. You don't have faith until you begin obeying. Because that's the evidence. That's the tangible proof of your faith. So therefore, belief alone is the agreement that there is a car, using our illustration again, which even the demons believe this. Even the demons believe in faith. Even demons believe there is a possibility to get to heaven. But faith is only when we get in the car And we drive it the way Jesus taught us to drive it, which the demons will never do, will they? The demons will never obey Jesus because they hate him. They hate him. They hate his will. They hate everything he stands for. And the demons, although they believe in him, so much they tremble, they will never obey him. And that's what separates or should separate you and I from the demons. We actually submit to him as Lord. So faith has to, has to be more than a mere acceptance that God is real. It has to start there, because there are people called atheists, clearly don't have faith. So it has to start with God is real, there is one God, he created the world, he has a son, he sent him to the earth to die for us. But faith is an action verb. It's an action verb, meaning that we do something based on the fact that we believe God is real. And we do something now that we are spiritually alive. It can now live for our Lord. Or let's say it this way. We must serve and obey the king or we don't have faith in him. If we don't serve and obey Jesus, we don't have faith in Jesus. If we only have a belief, but we don't use that belief for obedience to Jesus, then our faith is like the faith of the demons. Now, would you take the faith of the demons to Judgment Day? Would you take that faith and say, listen, I have it. It's just like the demons. No, you would never do that. You would never feel confident at Judgment Day saying your faith is like the faith of the demons. A mere belief, but no submission to Jesus. No obedience to Jesus. And that, according to James, is not faith at all. And it's useless. Because it cannot get us to heaven And it cannot glorify God. That's number one. Number two, James says this. He says, you see, this is challenging. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That right there, two Protestants, is almost cringeworthy. (laughs) And I hate saying that, but that's been so challenging for non-Roman Catholics is to look at that and go, wow, really? Does it say that in my Bible? A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let's handle that before we close, okay? This is where he brings up a couple examples. James brings up a couple examples. In verse 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, 
who everyone held to as the father of the faith, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now using Abraham and Rahab as illustrations for true faith, James says their lives are the picture of true faith. They didn't just say they believed in God, which many people say today. I believe in God. I believe he exists. I believe he is real. I believe he's the Savior. Rahab and Abraham believed God with their actions. They evidenced it by their obedience to God. We don't honor Abraham because he boasted in his belief in God. We honor Abraham because he actually believed God by his actions. When God asked him an incredibly hard task, he said, Abraham, sacrifice your son unto me, your one son that I promised everything through. Sacrifice Isaac unto me. Abraham didn't refuse. A refusal to obey God would have been the same as disbelief in God, that God would keep his promises. And therefore, disobedience is practical disbelief. But Abraham thankfully, gladly obeyed God. He was willing to slay his son if it meant that God would be glorified. And Abraham, therefore, he's a hero of the faith. But even beyond a hero, guys, Abraham is the picture of the faith that every Christian should have in their life. Tangible faith that can be seen and evidenced by our obedience to the Lord. And that's where young Todd was confused on. Todd had a noun faith, and he should have had an action verb faith. It's the same way for Rahab the prostitute in Joshua 2. I just need to recap this story because this one's not as famous. In Joshua 2, God is sending out men, or you can call them spies, to go into the land and and look it out. But the enemies don't like that. So they had to do it sort of in the shadows and the secret. And so they, they come to this woman, Rahab's house. And they don't know this woman, only except that she's, she's known to be a prostitute. And they come to this woman's house, and this woman does something quite shocking. She, she hides the men in her house, at the top of her house. And when the, the guards, the magistrates, come to look for these two guys, they come to her and say, Rahab, have you seen these two guys? And she says, yes, they did come here, but I sent them out this direction. And if you go this direction, you're going to find them. When really the two guys were up in her house. So Rahab actually protects the men of God at the cost, at the risk of her own life. She protects the men of God by saying, they're not here anymore. They went this way, when really the men of God are up in her house. And James is again using her as an illustration to say, we know Rahab believed God because she wouldn't have done that otherwise. Why would she risk her own life for the men of God unless she believed that God is real? If Abraham didn't obey God, if Rahab didn't obey God, we don't know who these people are today. They don't have a legacy of faith. And their faith would have been useless to them. It would have been useless to God. It would have been useless to us. 
But let us remember this. James is not saying that we earn our way into favor with God by doing good deeds. He is not saying that, okay? When we get spiritual life, it is because Jesus gives it to us free of charge by his own power, by his own blood, by his own forgiveness. He is saying that a faith without works will not justify us on Judgment Day because that faith is not a real faith. It is a false faith. It is a forgery faith. A faith without works, or we're going to call it again, obedience to Jesus, is like a car that never leaves your garage. It has no value, and it cannot get you to heaven. In fact, we looked at this passage already. One last flip. I want you to go to Ephesians. And I read you verses 8 and 9, which are the famous ones. Verses 8 and 9 are the ones that Protestants love, and kind of verse 10 gets chopped off sometimes. But I want you to look at verses 8 through 10, and I want you to listen to the relationship of works. Because if you read verses 8 to 10, you get the entire picture of Christianity. If you read verses 8 and 9, you only get the beginning of the picture. James says, or excuse me, Paul says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you notice works don't save you, but you were saved for works? Do you notice that? That's what it says in my Bible. I was not saved by them. I did not justify myself, but I must do them because I was created to do them. And that's when we fall off the horse, fall off the ledge sometimes by saying, see, works are no, no use to us. We don't need to do works. Let's punt works. Let's just be belief people. And James and Paul are going, no, that cannot be. You were created for them. But you just need to understand them properly. And that's the point of today. If we stand before Jesus on Judgment Day and he has to take us at our word that we believed in him, but he can't see it in our lives, I mean, he's going to look at our actions, he's going to look at our heart, and he's going to see if he sees obedience and submission to his law. And if he doesn't, he's going to say to us, similar to this, I don't know who you are, but you could not be mine because my people love God and my people love others. Our faith has to be seen. It has to be validated. It has to have evidence or we don't have faith. We are not just called to say we believe in Jesus, to put a Jesus fish on our cars, or to wear a cross around our neck. We are called to obey and submit to the King of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we obey and when we follow Jesus, we are clearly in love with him. And we're continuing the testimony of Jesus upon this world that God is real and that he loves us because we're willing to give our lives to him. And that's the point. Let's close this very quickly, okay? Without obedience to Jesus, we don't have true faith. We have a demon-like faith that's belief alone that cannot save us on Judgment Day. Now, I need to preface this. I want to make this crystal clear, okay? We need to understand this too. I want to be very clear so no one comes up and charges me with a perverted grace and perverted gospel We need to say this very clear, okay? As long as we see that we can never, ever earn our way into a right standing with God by doing good deeds, you have to believe that. Good works do not earn you favor with God. 
good works are evidence that you believe in God. As long as we say and believe that Jesus Christ alone is our Savior with nothing of ourselves added in, as long as we stand alone in the fact that we were sinners, saved by the Savior, and we were dead in our sins until Jesus gave us life, as long as we agree that without Jesus Christ we'd have no hope whatsoever, and with Jesus Christ we have eternal hope. If we have that clear, and I hope that you do, it has to start there. But if you do, if we have that straight, if we say amen to all of those, then we should get to work. And we should start validating the fact that we do believe what we just said by obeying his commandments, by blessing this world and others with our selfless acts of love. That's what James is saying. Protestants, we almost need to reform our idea of the importance of works and obedience to Jesus because we've gone too far, many of us, by saying, see, they don't save us, therefore we don't need them. Man, that is so inaccurate. Works or obedience to Jesus is as crucial as anything you will find in Scripture. If you don't have it, you don't have faith. The honest truth is that if we can obey Jesus, if we can obey Jesus, why do you think that is? If we can obey Jesus and we want to obey Jesus, why is that possible? And isn't the only conclusion is that because we have new life in Jesus? that he is our Savior, that he is our Lord. And if you flip that around and we can't obey Jesus or we don't want to obey Jesus, shouldn't we question that we have faith at all? And see that maybe we have a false faith like I did at age 25 because faith without works is dead. Let's put a bow on this by saying this. Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus is coming back soon. I don't know how long we have but we need a true faith at Judgment Day. A true, proper, saving faith at Judgment Day. Not a faith that is going to fail us because it was mere belief like the demons. The Lord needs to see that when we say we love him, we actually did with our lives. TGD read one of the passages that proves this, but I'm going to read two in a row just so we understand this clearly, and then we're going to close in prayer. Romans 2, 6 to 8, you can flip there or you can just listen. Romans 2, 6 to 8 says this, speaking of Judgment Day, He, Jesus, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, there will be wrath and fury because they didn't have faith. Matthew 7, 24 to 27, which TGD read to us, it says, Every man, excuse me, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Now, I've heard this passage before going, see, I just need to believe in Jesus. And then I looked at it closely one day and I was like, wait a minute. It says something different. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house upon the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Consequently, everyone who hears these words of mine and 
does not do them. Hear the words of Jesus, probably believe that he's the son of God because they're hearing the words of God, but they don't do them. We'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. If you don't have true faith today, or you don't know if you have true faith today, come and talk to us. Or go to God and his word directly and figure this out today because I don't want anyone not confident that they're an actual follower of Jesus before Judgment Day. Because Jesus is coming back, it's going to be soon, and it's going to be eternal. Guys, let us all build our houses on the rock today by making absolutely sure that Jesus is our Lord, he's our Savior, and we submit to his will and his word to love one another. Because faith without works is dead. And with obedience to Jesus, we have tangible faith. Faith that will stand on Judgment Day. And that's the point of what James is saying. Would you pray with me? Father, I know it was a lot. I know it's a lot of detail. I know it's a lot of information, but it's really, really important. And I can only pray right now that some here would grab a hold of this and say, man, I have to have that faith. And maybe question the faith of just acceptance and occasional church attendance and just wearing something around their neck or putting something on their car to actual obedience and actually following the Lord Jesus with our lives because that's why Jesus came to say, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Follow me. Help us, Father, to understand this clearly, to line up behind Jesus Christ, to give him our lives and to say, your will is my will, your commandments are my duty because I believe in you and because I love you. Build this church and do it for Christ's sake so that this world can see what it really means to love our Lord and Savior. And we give you all glory and credit for our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.